For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. Oklahoma is falling behind when it comes to getting an online voter registration policy. Lawmakers passed a law in 2015 allowing for the process, but nearly seven years later, the platform remains a work in progress. Since then, the U.S. has gone from 24 states with online registration to now 40. Ryan, why this delay? Well, the delay doesn't really seem to be for a lack of money, which is usually what we hear in state government. It's, you know, we want to do this, but we don't have the funds to do it. The delay here really seems to be a requirement in the law that created the online voter registration um, uh, opportunity that that Oklahomans would be able to use requires a cross check with the Department of Public Safety's driver's licenses. And so getting those two different data uh, silos to talk with one another seems to be the real hang up here. Um, but even then, it, it shouldn't take that long to get two different systems to talk to one another. And as Senator Julia Kurt, who is now going to be authoring legislation, I think for the second year in a row, uh, putting mandates in place saying, like, we've got to get this done. You know, what she's saying is if, if we can't get this through with DPS, if there's a hang up there, there's got to be a better way for us to cross reference this, you know, whether that's through Social Security numbers, any number of means that we use to verify our, our very secure voting system. And so uh, also to be clear what this isn't, this is not allowing Oklahomans to go online and vote. Um, I think that, you know, some of the <clears throat> conversation about that over the years you know, seems to imply that, you know, this would, you know, create a system. We're not there yet. I don't know, you know, given, you know, where we've been with uh, uh, talks of talk of election security and fraud and the big lie and all that. I don't know that we ever get to a point in America now where we have online voting, but online registration, this, this ought to be a thing uh, that we should have had seven years ago. And hopefully Senator Kurt and, you know, and Senator Zirak or, or, or Secretary Zirax at the election board, you know, who's done a, a wonderful job of getting parts of it that he can implement without having to have other state agencies involved. Uh, maybe by the end of this legislative session, we'll have it. Neva. And you're right. I mean, there are parts uh, that have already come into play. Phase one, I think, uh, uh, was rolled out uh, really back, I think it's been several years ago, maybe as far back as 2018, not long after Senator Holt at the time um, authored this legislation. And uh, what it allows for is that people that are already registered to vote can actually go online and they can update their party affiliation if they want to make a change or they can change their address within the same county. But now all of these other uh, matters that we're talking about, they're the ones stalled because of the issues. And primarily, uh, it, it appears, I mean, through all of the conversations, that the Department of Public Safety and their um, their computer system not being adequate and not uh, uh, being able to handle the, the additional processes that are necessary, uh, this is where it's kind of stalled out. And you're right, there's been legislation, even this past session, uh, that didn't go anywhere, died in the Senate. Um, and I think... Uh, I, th I think that we will see some continued movement, but I think everyone is certainly not wildly optimistic that they have any kind of realistic timeline on when it's actually going to be fully implemented. And this isn't unique to <clears throat> to voter registration and DPS. Right. You know, we have so many data systems in the state of Oklahoma that hold a wealth of information, uh, but oftentimes they're on their own little silos. I, I worked closely with Representative Melody Blancet over this last legislative session trying to get 
criminal justice data to talk to one another. I mean, we, we can't answer the simple question, how many people are in county jails in the state of Oklahoma right now today? Uh, and for what? We just can't answer that question. And it's, it's a similar problem. You know, we've got all of these data systems, but they don't talk to one another. You know, the creation of OMES was supposed to, uh, you know, consolidate a lot of that. And I, I believe in a lot of ways it has, but there's still a lot of artifacts hanging out there that, that need to be resolved. Education Secretary Ryan Walters releases funding for early childhood education to Tulsa Public Schools. The state superintendent candidate says he had originally chosen not to sign off on the funds because of an unrelated pending audit on the district. Neva, why did Walters wait to allow TPS to get this funding? Well, I mean, he, I don't think it's ever been fully uh, stated what the, what the issues were. I think what you just said, uh, Michael, in terms of, you know, initially being withheld for this unrelated pending audit. But bottom line is the funds have been released, and, and it does require uh, the gubernatorial cabinet secretary for education, in this instance, Ryan Walters, he must sign off on this, this matter or any non-emergency expenses that are greater than $25,000 with the State Department of Ed. So um, it, it is something that uh, kind of was a sticking point, obviously, becomes mired a, a little bit in the political side of it, given the fact that he now is uh, a candidate running for uh, state, uh, uh, state superintendent of education and someone who is now in the middle of a runoff just three weeks away. So um, I, think, I think from the standpoint of the millions of dollars in these programs and getting them underway to be utilized in the prescribed manner that, are, that, that, is, that is necessary, that's the important takeaway from this is that that has now been accomplished. Ryan. Well, you've got somebody who's in a runoff uh, just a couple of weeks away who is also the, you know, the feature uh, uh, person in reports from the federal government about failures from the state of Oklahoma and how it spent COVID relief dollars around education. And that, that totals millions of dollars, you know, well in excess of anything that we're talking about with Tulsa Public Schools here or Community Action Agency Tulsa. Um, you know, I think that this story is you know, on its face an attempt to divert away uh, attention from Ryan Walters um, being you know, front and center in this you know, federal report that demonstrates multiple failures from the state of Oklahoma. And, you know, to uh, the point that Secretary Walters, you know, is trying to create this sense that uh, Tulsa Public Schools or the State Department of Education or, or Superintendent Hoffmeister are hiding something. I mean, the Tulsa World story itself said that, you know, Walters initially sent questions about the contract to the Oklahoma State Department of Education on June 25th. And he got answers within 48 hours. Uh, I mean, that's that's a pretty quick turnaround. You know, so to, to act like there's a lack of transparency or that people are hiding something here is just disingenuous on its face. And, and again, I think that this really comes down to a candidate, not a secretary or a cabinet member, but a candidate trying to divert attention away from negative publicity that they're getting hit with uh, for millions of dollars of potentially misspent or, um, you know, un- Un, untraced and untracked um, uh, federal dollars that you know, we just don't have any account for. And I think it's important to note, I mean, we're talking about the release of these dollars that are early childhood education funds. I mean, this particular program that CAP Tulsa, the Community Action mm-hmm. Project of Tulsa, 
uh, administers. This is something that they've been doing since 2006. They, they are an organization. They bid annually for this program. Uh, this program also provides matching funds to the ones that are uh, uh, given by the state. So uh, we're talking about a program and the dollars allocated to the program and then all of this other swirling uh, questions and issues around other education matters uh, and that that I think sometimes in the minds of folks listening gets very confusing. So I think that's an important distinction to make. Federal auditors want hundreds of thousands of dollars clawed back from Oklahoma after criticism of coronavirus relief funds distributed by Governor Stitt. A 69-page report lays out a number of failures by the state in distributing nearly $40 million. Ryan, what are some of the examples of misspending here? Well, it's not even examples of misspending. It's uh, examples of not accounting for how it was spent at all. I mean, that's, that's some of the big questions is that you don't have paperwork to back up. Where did this money go? Where are the receipts at? Um, and then one of the biggest questions is that we, we sent back in addition to, you know, potentially having to have hundreds of thousands of dollars in repayment to the federal government that we sp- sent $3 million back, uh, and said that we couldn't figure out ways to spend it essentially. Uh, yeah, I think that the report and it's, I, I would encourage folks to go, uh, if you go to KOSU.org, there's a link to the 69 page report. You know, you can just read that summary of, of key findings there. Um, but you know, things like Christmas trees, smartwatches, televisions, uh, purchased on, on this account. And whenever you go through and try to see, well, who requisitioned this? How would, how was this meant to meet the requirements of the grant? The state in many instances is empty handed. Uh, you simply cannot run a state that way. Uh, you, you might be able to run a business, you know, a small, small business that way. You might, you know, misplace a few receipts here and there and say, oh yeah, well, I, I know that I did that there and you're accountable to yourself. Uh, but these are tax dollars and you need to be accountable to taxpayers. And that's what this federal report is about. I, I don't think that this is the end of it. If the state of Oklahoma ends up having to give back hundreds of thousands of dollars and then on top of the three million that we weren't able to spend. I mean, that's that to me is, you know, a kind of a negligence that's just unacceptable with pu- public funds. Neva. Well, and it, it is important to note, I mean, we're talking about a review uh, a federal in, uh, review that's by the uh, U.S. Department of Education. It's the uh, Inspector General's office. And you're right, Ryan. I mean, they've already identified in this uh, initial uh, report uh, the $650,000 in the in the misspending or the uh, purchases that were not allowable. But they're now still reviewing more than $5.5 million in purchases. So th- a lot of questions still out there. And I think that the auditors, one of the things that I thought was fascinating looking at the report was that the company that had um, uh, uh, been set to to help distribute the money, Class Wallet, that we talked about before, they offered, according to the documents in this, in this report, they offered to put in safeguards to ensure that the funds were properly spent. And the auditors are saying that Oklahoma didn't use them. So, I mean, we've already seen some exchange back and forth where, you know, we've got the finger pointing already starting on who, you know, who was responsible and who said what and all of that. This is where audits like this become critical in trying to get to the bottom line of, you know, where where did the money go? How was it spent? What was what was the paper trail? And I think uh, uh, in this instance, um, you know, there there still are many questions that are out there. I mean, there are there were programs and other things done through the Bridge the Gap, uh, the digital wallet program that was uh, overseen uh, on on the 
on the state side and other things that really, I mean, really, I think from the public standpoint, just want to know what what the bottom line is. How was the money spent? Was it proper? If it wasn't proper, then I think even the governor's, you know, in his own words, has said that he wants, uh, uh, you know, openness, transparency. He wants the bottom line seen as well. So uh, I think we'll look very quickly to see some resolution by the feds in terms of what their final audit report looks like. Well, and it's not just a matter of, of like you said, of, of how the money was spent, um, but you know, the, the requirements in this program uh, are pretty clear uh, in, in many instances. You know, the governor had wide discretion, and I think voters will give and, and should give, you know, any administration during COVID uh, in any state, Republican or Democratic, uh, will, and we'll give them some leeway. You know, that money needed to come in fast. It needed to be spent fast. We needed real relief right then. Uh, and so I think that there's leeway and, and some of this, you know, uh, point where you can say maybe negligence or malfeasance, but there's a point to that where that voters are not forgiving anymore. And they just say, well, wait a second, were you just throwing this money out the window? And like the, the stay in school program that was giving $6,500, uh, in scholarships, uh, for families, uh, to send their kids to private schools during the COVID lockdown, because I pres- presumably the private schools were open in many instances where public schools weren't. So there are these, you know, tuition uh, offsets of $6,500. When the feds looked at that, they said that they couldn't show, they uh, they picked 10 random families. And out of those 10 random families, they couldn't show that eight of them were eligible, uh, met eligibility requirements. So again, I think that voters have a lot of tolerance uh, for people, leaders that are acting in emergency situations, but it only goes so far. The state chamber is calling on Oklahoma lawmakers to return to Reaganomics. The call for a supply-side revival includes cutting taxes and modernizing business taxes. Neva, why the push by the state chamber? Well, I think it's timely. I mean, I think I think we're in a, a period uh, just like we saw, and if we remember back to the days uh, with Ronald Reagan, I mean, where you have, uh, you know, where you have a stagnant economy, you have a soaring uh, inflation, you have, uh, by all most uh, accounts, uh, a recession in play. And so uh, talking about pro-tax, pro-growth tax policies is something that I think its time has come again. And I think uh, in a Republican legislature, when you talk about uh, uh, an idea that the state chamber has rolled out through their research arm saying that, uh, that we could become a national model, that we could do things during these very uh, very rough economic times that we're in now that would uh, that would change the change the landscape for all Oklahomans. I mean, one of the things uh, talked about was uh, changing the the uh, the tax uh, the tax system. I mean, this top rate of uh, four and three quarter percent. I mean, using a flat tax of two and three quarter percent would be a game changer. And and uh, y- y- looking at that, looking at eliminating the franchise tax, uh, new exemptions on other things such as. Uh, uh, machinery or farm implements, revamping a lot of the other uh, business taxes. These are all things that have been talked about over time, but a package uh, with a very dynamic, uh, uh, very exciting tax policy change, I think is something that uh, lawmakers uh, probably are going to take a serious look at in this next legislative session. So they're teeing it up, talking about the high points. Uh, There's a lot of details. Obviously, you'd start talking about changing tax policy. They've been talking about that for decades in Washington, not something easy to accomplish. But, but, you know, Ronald Reagan was the guy, you know, uh, he always used to have the one-liners that everybody used to 
uh, uh, over and over to kind of uh, lay the groundwork on these types of discussions. And I always remember one where he, he said that, uh, you know, if it moves, tax it. If it keeps moving, regulate it. And if it stops moving, subsidize it. So, you know, he's he, he has a he has a, um, a, a lot to offer in terms of the history of um, policymaking and certainly Republicans at the forefront of doing things that have been very positive for Americans and in this case, looking at what we can do here in Oklahoma. Ryan. Boy, I don't, I don't know if Ronald Reagan makes it out of a statewide Republican primary in Oklahoma uh, in 2022. I, I think, you know, maybe on, on fiscal issues, he would have some resonance with the Chamber of Commerce crowd. I think on social issues, uh, President Reagan is, is far too progressive and liberal uh, than, they, than <laughs> the Republican primary base uh, that Donald Trump has cultivated uh, would allow. So, I mean, interesting. I mean, you know, if, if we could have, uh, you know, uh, greatest of all time primary Donald Trump versus Ronald Reagan in Oklahoma. Uh, you know, I'd pay to watch that, uh, and, and see what happens. But there, yeah, there's some real question as to whether or not these tax cuts do anything to stave off inflation or, or a recession. You know, many of the, uh, market forces that are at play there are beyond, you know, what a single state can do. Um, I think that, you know, single states can begin to look at how do we provide some relief to our, uh, constituents during, uh, times of recession or record inflation like this, but the idea that uh, you know a state tax policy can stave off inflation, it, you know, is you know just really doesn't make sense. Uh, you know, we even the even the Fed, Federal Reserve, and their ability to move uh, the economy is is pretty limited. You know, there there are limited tools that we have at our disposal in, in moving these pieces of the puzzle. One of the things that we do control uh, right here in Oklahoma that don't rely on these kind of outside you know market forces that are largely beyond our our reach is how we spend our money uh, and the services that we invest in. So anytime we start talking about tax cuts, um, you know that conversation, uh, you know whether it's innovation, whether it's you know you know trying to starve government, whatever that is. That conversation you know, really should honestly include a conversation about how do we continue to fund state services, um, or are there state services that we no longer want to fund? Um, I, I'm afraid that oftentimes we get into these conversations where we say, well, we can do the same services, but for less money, and that just doesn't work, especially at a time when we have record inflation. I mean, this is definitely not the time when the state of Oklahoma can say we can become a leaner ship uh, and still provide critical state services. So. That's really the conversation. And then, you know, finally, uh, I do think that this might be a signal from the State Chamber of Commerce that they want to begin to try to wrestle back some control uh, from that uh, part of the primary electorate in the Republican camp that does tend to go for cultural issues and the Donald Trump uh, style candidates and, and to really move the, the campaigns uh, and the candidates and, and the discourse in the Republican Party back to things like economic issues and fiscal issues. You know, I, I welcome having those conversations and those debates uh, if that's really the direction that the Republican Party wants to go. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it, when we talk about it's not about doing away with services, it's not, you know, this argument that sometimes gets thrown out there to try to, I think, confuse and obfuscate the, the real issue. When we're talking about private sector investment, if you're talking about, you know, boosting the economy, you're talking about putting more dollars in the pockets of the tax 
taxpayer, you're not talking about, uh, you know, you're not talking about doing anything but stimulating the economy and improving the overall environment for all of these things to be accomplished, for more dollars to be there where necessary for core government services, but to allow the economy to flourish and people to be able to uh, uh, to live and, and, and make a decent living and raise their family and do the things that as American as Americans we have long believed in and fought for. Three Oklahoma City Republican lawmakers are championing an initiative petition to freeze property values for all Oklahoma seniors. The petition would appear as state question 822 as it would be a constitutional amendment. Organizers would need to gather nearly 178,000 signatures over 90 days. Ryan, what do you think about this initiative? Well, I, I think the first thing to say is that Oklahomans won't be considering it this November. There's just simply no time uh, to be able to collect an initiative, uh, the number of signatures and go through the entire process. Even if you don't have any challenges or protest and you do everything perfect, there's just no way that this makes the November 2022 election. I, I do like the idea of a couple of lawmakers engaging in the initiative petition process, though, uh, because there is this sense at the state capitol that initiatives are are just really easy. It's really easy to get something on the ballot, and you know that that's why we you know face these ballot measures that lawmakers don't like to see sometimes, and they think that it's frivolous, and uh, that you know if you just want to put it on the ballot, you can, you know. I'm, I welcome them out there talking to Oklahoma voters, doing the signature process, making sure that their signatures are valid and understanding it a little bit better because I, I do think that it will um, uh, recalibrate the way that lawmakers think about the initiative process. Uh, you know, on this particular issue, you know, whenever I, I was thinking back you know, to 2004 when I first ran uh, for the state house, this was an issue that I cared a lot about. You know, I was talking to a lot of seniors in, in my district and they they wanted to know, they said, well, I'm on a fixed income and my fixed income gets smaller and smaller each year. Um, again, whenever we talk about cutting taxes, you got to think of, you know, what are the services that, that get lost there? Um, and are Oklahoma voters primed to vote for a state question that's going to, you know, freeze the property taxes on the wealthiest Oklahomans that live in homes uh, in, in Nichols Hills that most Oklahomans, you know, you can put their houses in the living room uh, of some of those houses. Do we really want to freeze the property taxes there? Do there need to be caps? You know, there are caps currently. Uh, and I think a lot of folks might look at a cap in Oklahoma County, I think is around seventy, eighty thousand dollars um, in, in income. Some may look at that and say, well, that's really high. But then if you look at, uh, what, what it just takes to, to get by and live. And then if you look at some of those caps in rural areas, they're much lower. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, potentially coming back and, and looking at ways that the caps can be caught up so that, you know, we're not giving a huge tax giveaway to folks that live in mansions, but we're also making sure that people that are on fixed incomes and are seniors don't see their property uh, taxes go up while their income stays the same. Neva. Well, I think and this is a conversation that, that has been going on for more than just this session. I mean, it, while it passed in the House uh, back in March, I mean, overwhelmingly, it stalled out in the Senate. But a year ago, uh, Representative Robert Manger, who, for full disclosure, is a, is a client, um, he had a resolution, uh, he had a measure that 
went through committee overwhelmingly, went through the House on strong bipartisan support, and again, stalled out on the Senate side, where uh, there seems to have been, in both instances, some pretty heavy lobbying from uh, uh, county assessors, uh, certainly in some of these larger counties, Larry Stein being uh, in Oklahoma County, being kind of the guy at the forefront that has really battled this and tried to, uh, you know, give all of the reasons and throw out all of these dollar amounts about why it was such a bad idea. But, you know, when you look at it just on its face, I mean, the proposed state question would undo the language that's in the Constitution right now that uh, says that seniors are eligible for a freeze on the assessed value for their home based on household income. And what it does is just uh, takes that away, and it uh, it allows for that to be across the board for all seniors, uh, not just those uh, in these uh, prescribed income you know, amounts. So um, I think it's something that uh, would have widespread support. I mean, if you look at anything uh, that's come out so far among seniors statewide, I think the issues, some of the ones you've raised, Ryan, are ones that have come up before. Um, I agree with you. I think given the time frame we're on, it is impossible now for that to be something on the November ballot. Uh, the, the clock's, you know, going to run out far, far sooner than they're able to get the signatures and go through the process. But this is an idea that I think is going to continue to roll around out there. And we are going to see, at least at some point, if the legislature doesn't take the bull by the horns and do something about it, then the voters are ultimately going to be able to make that decision. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.